Hi, Henry and Ada. In case you don't know, Animorphs was an incredibly popular middle grade book series that ran from 1996 to 2001. And for me, that was right in the sweet spot of actual childhood turning into, oh no, it's happening to my body times. And I was fascinated. It's a sci-fi story of an alien invasion, a body snatchers type of thing about alien slugs called Yerks, who slither into people's brains, taking control of them completely. Five kids are walking home from the mall one night and find a crashed alien spaceship, where a benevolent psychic deer scorpion gives them superpowers, because these teens are the only ones who can stop the invasion. Basic 90s kid book stuff. But what wasn't basic was the strange mix of emotions these books caused in me and in many other trans kids of the time. Now, why does that happen exactly? It's ultimately a story about war, and while sci-fi is usually fertile ground for queer allegory, this series, in over 62 main story books, touches on trans themes like dysphoria, dysmorphia, body horror in general, and the fear that your friends and family are secretly evil monsters who will cease caring about you if they learn your secret. The series married several loves for young Katie, the isolation and alienation I felt in home and in school, the peculiar thrill I got from the idea of powers that let you change your body at will, and my deep love of scholastic book fairs, especially books that came out once a month. I was a Goosebumps girl in fourth grade, but I quickly abandoned them for Jake, Rachel, Cassie, Marco, Axe, and especially Tobias, who was totally trans. I'm Henry Jardina. I'm a writer, a critic, and a trans guy. My pronouns are he, they. I'm Ada Rhodes Short, an activist, academic engineer, and queer trans woman whose pronouns are she, her. And I'm Katie Coleman. I'm a playwright and composer and a queer trans woman. My pronouns are she, her. This is Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon where we talk about some of the most well-known figures from film, literature, and media. And tell you why we think they deserve to be part of the trans-cultural canon. And this week, I am going to tell you why Tobias from Animorphs is totally trans. Children's literature has not always concerned itself with the outsider. While it may seem that way to anyone who grew up in the last half of the 20th century, Children's books from the 50s and earlier were largely concerned with clean-cut boys and demure girls who always did what their parents told them, and if they didn't, they expected consequences. While there are some exceptions to this, it really started to change in the late 50s and early 60s with the efforts of three women, S.E. Henton, Beverly Cleary, and Judy Bloom. While I could go on and on about the cultural significance that these three left in their wake, the reason I bring them up is that their books were the first bestsellers to really capture what it was like to be the weirdo. The outcast, the ugly kid, the overweight girl, and the person who just isn't like anyone else. By the 1990s, this was the norm for children's books. Sure, people still wrote about the rich and popular kids, but the bread and butter of Scholastic, the children's book juggernaut of the last 40 years, was this kid. The one the weirdos and the queers latched onto. This is me, we thought, and that's why that fiction became so important to us. In a real world where we didn't have social media and barely had the internet, meeting people like yourself was hard, and seeing yourself represented was a completely foreign concept. So we took the weirdos, we put our baggage onto them. This kind of fandom eventually turns toxic, of course, but for many of us, it was just what we needed. In 1996, Catherine Applegate, along with the uncredited co-writer, her husband, 
Michael Grant, who would later become a popular YA author in his own right for the Gone series, created a surprisingly lore-deep science fiction story with no shortage of ridiculous proper nouns. Andalite, Visser, Horkbegir, Toxin, Elemist, Krayak, Drode, Ged? Jed? I don't know how to pronounce any of them. It goes on and on, and while this was certainly catnip to young Star Wars kids like me, what really hooked us on Animorphs was the characters. And of those, my favorite was always the outcast Tobias. Tobias is the loner orphan kid who's only hanging out with the others because one of them saved him from some bullies earlier. And his story only gets more sad from there. At the end of the first book, he breaks the one rule of morphing. You can't stay in a morph for longer than two hours at a time. He becomes what the books call a nofflet, someone trapped in the body of an animal. In Tobias's case, a red-tailed hawk. What follows is 61 more books where he lives in a body that isn't right. And for trans kids fast approaching puberty, like ourselves, that was something we weren't reading about anywhere else. We don't want to draw too many comparisons to the cliche of, quote, being trapped in the wrong body, but since that's literally what happens to Tobias, the Venn diagram of his story and gender dysphoria have some definite overlap. Now, the series has a rotating cast of narrators, with Tobias and Axe, the alien, having half as many POV books as the other. The weirdos get less coverage, as usual. For our purposes, we read two Tobias books from the series, but in the sense of full disclosure, since I have nothing better to do with my life, I read all eight Tobias books. The first book we read was number three, The Encounter, which the titles mean nothing in this series, this one less than most. Published in 1996, The Encounter is the first book with Tobias as narrator, and although by that point he's been a hawk for a couple of weeks, it's also the first time we really get a sense of his struggle— The microplot of these books aren't really important to our purposes here, but the basic loop of these books is something is discovered, the kids try to hurt the Yerks or expose something or rescue someone. Sometimes they have a small victory, but mostly they fail in some way and barely escape with their lives. In this book, they spend a lot of time in the woods, which is becoming Tobias's new home. He has been alienated from the group somewhat. He can't participate as fully as the rest because he no longer has the ability to morph. He's also starting to feel like he's not even human anymore. Everyone else gets to be wolves, and he wonders what it feels like. Maybe later I could ask Jake or Rachel about it. Then you could ask them what it was like to be human. Maybe they can tell you about that too, I thought bitterly. At the beginning of the encounter, he also finds a female red-tailed hawk in a cage and rescues her. Throughout the rest of the book, he spots her in various places and thinks about her life in relation to his own. It was the hawk that frightened me. Or maybe not the hawk herself. Maybe it was the feeling I had, rising up to meet her in the sky. The feeling of recognition. The feeling of going home. The feeling that I belonged with her. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that certainly describes several interactions I had with trans women before I came out. This is also the point where we admit we're playing both sides of this allegory. Tobias feeling both like a hawk and like a human can feel trans. But that's kind of the beauty of allegory, isn't it? We can look at it in any way that suits us. For example, at the end of the book, Tobias has this conversation with Rachel. You belong with us, Rachel said firmly. You are a human being, Tobias. How could you be so sure, I asked her. Because what counts is in your head and your heart, she said with sudden passion. A person isn't his body. A person isn't what's on the outside. Now that's some 2020 thinking from 1996 Rachel there. 
Love her for that. The second book we read for this episode is 1997's The Change, number 13 in the series, and the second book narrated by Tobias. This one gets even more high concept. As the primary plot about a godlike alien called the Elimist, who functions as a deus ex machina in the series from time to time. This time around, he, they, the Eliminist, is complicated. <laughs> Not to go off on too much of a tangent here, especially since this wasn't the focus of the episode, but the Elimist was originally male, but eventually incorporated himself into the consciousnesses of billions of other dead sentient creatures and became a near-omnipotent being creating a new body for themselves that's also part spaceship before then, merging with the very fabric of space and time. So while this book from the 90s uses he-him pronouns, I think they're well beyond any concept of gender we have on Earth. There's a whole book about them, and it is weird. Staying on track, the Elimist has a god-devil-making-wagers situation with a different godlike alien, and because of that, he helps out our kids from time to time. This time he's trying to save two members of the Hork-Bajir species, the lizard species that are entirely controllers of the Yerks. They tell Tobias that if he can save these two aliens, he will be granted a reward. Tobias, of course, wants to be human again. Or does he? And what do you want, Tobias? You know what I want, I said, almost choking the words. You know. Yes, but do you know what you want, Tobias? The Elemis asked. And if you get it, will you still know? So they save the aliens, but instead of returning to his human body, Tobias is granted the power to morph. The hawk will remain his true form. One of the rescued aliens, named Jera Hami, doesn't quite understand this. You human folk? I used to be, I said. I, well, I'm not exactly the same as I used to be. I've changed. Jera Hami changed too. Not free. Now free. Same, girl. So Tobias thinks it's all over, but then he gets a late-night call from the Elemist. He takes Tobias back in time, to his own bedroom the night before the alien ship crashed. Tobias the Hawk sees his own human self sitting in his bed. Human Tobias thinks he's dreaming and reaches out to touch the Hawk. This is where Tobias the Hawk acquires his own human self, giving him the power to morph into his old human body. But only for two hours at a time. He's been given a choice— he can become human again, permanently, but he'll lose his superpower and be out of the fight for good. So what do you think he decides to do? Never again to morph. Never again to be a hawk. Never again to fly. Have I kept my promise? The Elemist said. Yes, I said. And are you happy, Tobias? Tobias is not happy and doesn't have much happiness throughout the rest of the series. As the series goes on, he struggles with romance, the pleasure-slash-disgust of eating mice, and the constant dreams where he is able to transcend his form. The series gets darker and darker as it progresses. Surprisingly so, actually, as it ends with the entire group committing genocide, living for years with PTSD, and then finally sacrificing themselves to fend off yet another alien invasion. Tobias never gets his peace. None of the characters do, but for me, and a generation of trans kids, and it's here where I'll mention that one of those trans kids includes the author's own daughter, his struggle resonated with something, something I couldn't put words to at nine when I started reading the books, and only started to realize at 22 when I read through the entire series. The spirit of being trans is to transcend the body or the social placement we have been given, and to take control of it, to morph ourselves, one way or another, into something that resembles our truth. So, 
before we dig into discussion, what is everyone's original context with the Animorphs? Yeah, I, I'm i pretty sure I picked up the first like three all at once at a Scholastic Book Fair in like fourth grade and was instantly in love with them. And they were the thing that came out like every month. And so for a while, at least until I kind of like grew out of it, I read I read it every month as soon as it came out. And I I stopped probably reading. I think I don't remember how many of them I had originally, but fell off of that. And then when I graduated undergrad, decided I was going to read through the whole series again because I started a conversation with someone about, hey, those books were really good. huh? I wonder how it ended. And I uh, went on eBay and I bought the entire series in a big box for like twenty five dollars. Uh, and that summer, after I graduated college and before I moved to New York, I read the entire series. I also encountered it for the first time at a Scholastic Book Fair. I really liked the gimmick that it had with there's like a little flip book in the corner where it'd be like the person would like morph into an animal, which is really fun. And then you could flip it backwards. And I think I read like the first one or two, but then sort of lost interest because uh, I was a weird kid. I read a lot of nonfiction primarily. I still read a lot of nonfiction primarily, but I, I owned a bunch of them. And because I had older siblings that were just one and two years older than me, we had like a lot of the Animorphs books. And then I also remember the Animorphs TV show being on Nickelodeon because it has that one, one of, that one of those two twins that is it the one that's Iceman we'll or the know. one that isn't Iceman? There's no way to know. One of them's Iceman. The other one's not Iceman. But one of them was in the Animorphs, and uh, and that forever became my context as being like, oh, it's that guy from the Animorphs until he was in the X-Men. And then I was like, oh, it's that guy from the X-Men. Or his twin brother. We'll never know. Henry, what was your context for the Animorphs? Similarly, I, um, I definitely saw them at the Scholastic Book Fairs. But I don't remember, like, it seems exactly like something I would have read. And I remember the covers so vividly. But I feel like, yeah, similarly to Katie, I really liked, like, Goosebumps. I liked R.L. Stein, But I think I was very, and to this day I have this problem, I think I was, like, intimidated slash put off by the the language around, like... Like, anytime a story gets a bit too bogged down in a sci-fi or fantasy plot, I immediately lose interest. Like, I remember reading books very similar where, like, I really loved the concept of, like, oh, there are these kids and, like, everybody around them, like, the adults, their friends are all, like, taken over and only they can see the truth of, like, the the body snatchers theme. Like, I read a lot of books like that, but I think, like, the the Hork Bajar and the Yurt and the what I was kind of just like, eh, like... <laughs> I don't know. And then I remember when like Tumblr was the thing of the moment, there was like, there was yeah. a version of the Animorphs cover that was Pitbull. <laughs> it was just like, you'll never, it was just Pitbull, the singer transforming into a put Pitbull dog. And that gave me so much delight. I remember being like so excited for the TV show when it was going to come out and being really disappointed when it did come out. Just being like, I was probably too young to be so disappointed in a in a media property but I was I was really upset about it <laughs> for me I actually really I re- really liked the TV show I enjoyed watching it and I think part of that is actually the kid the TV show was much more child friendly because <laughs> something I realized while reading these 
this time around is like, wow, these are really heavy books and kind of on the topic of like goosebumps. Like I liked the goosebumps books and some of those like scary story books, but none of those come close on like body horror and adult themes and like war and horrible violence as like the Animorph books do. They're like honestly Extremely. really fucked up. And also really well written. I think they were just like a little too heavy for a little me to handle. Um, it's mostly teens brooding about like body issues and like grotesque horror happening and like people dying horrible deaths or people having serious conversations about like, like Tobias tries to kill himself. Like all of these kids at some point try and kill themselves. And then like, yeah, it's, brutal and they also with the hork bajir with um jeremy and his wife they like have this whole discussion about like if the yorks take over their mind again they want them to like kill them and it's like jesus christ like they just spent this whole book being like you love these you love these lizard tree boys right what if we murdered them what if we had your heroes murder them for freedom uh, and then it like ends apparently because I, um, I, yeah, so we went, we had three books. We mostly read the first two and then I read half of the fir- the third one. And then I like did the summary for the second half of it and then read the summary of a handful of other episodes and then dug in way too deep, deep on the Animorphs wiki. But yeah, definitely ends with effectively genocide of the Yerks with like the last Yerks. Like, all of the bad guys are forced to, like, turn into animals and become the, like, the no-changey yeah. things, the nithlets. And uh, and then Jake uh, becomes, like, a burnt-out, traumatized soldier <laughs> who decides to, like, do train counter-terrorist animorphs for the government? Yeah. Which is insane. That's insane. And then him and the surviving animorphs, because Tobias's love interest... Dies a horrible death that, for no no reason outside does of himself, drama. Like, uh, and then the rest, yeah, yeah, he puts her in that situation. Yeah. Uh, oh, also, and Tobias will not re- will not forgive him. Yeah. So yeah, Jake ends up basically like sending Rachel to her death, and then there's also the auxiliary animorphs, yeah. which were a bunch of disabled kids that they gave animorphing powers to, so they'd be healed. They all die in the last book. They're all like vaporized with space lasers. And then the remaining Animorphs decide to ram their spaceship into a space god monster, maybe dying? That's how it ends? Yeah. What the fuck? It's got the angel ending. Uh, I definitely want to... So I definitely want to read all of these now because I'm kind of hooked. So this is going to be my, like, airport books for the next couple years. It's just going to be all the Animorph books. Uh, I was just not ready for this as a baby. Yeah. Can I just say the the description of, is it Cassie? Somebody turns into a fish at some point, and the description of it is so fucking intense. It's like, her whole body was laminated with plastic, and her eyes flipped to the side of her face. I was just like, ah! Ah! Like, I'm just in my apartment being like, no! Yeah. Well, and really, the, like, um, the descriptions of them changing into wolves are really grotesque. Anytime they take the time to describe the, the morphing process, they yeah. make it really yeah. clear this isn't a pretty thing. And, like, no. um, 
And when they get caught. Yeah, there's a really, really Cronenberg-esque like scene yeah. where they've they've stayed almost two hours in the wolf morphs and they're trying to change back and they can't. And they're worried they're going to get stuck as these horrible like half wolf, half human abominations. It's It's terrifying. With that being said, lots of body horror, surprisingly well-written, mature books for things that I just knew as pretty flip books, and then a fun Nickelodeon show that was kind of wholesome and moody. On a lighter note, when you were kiddos, what superpowers did you want? Absolutely shape shape shifting. Like Mystique was my favorite. Like I didn't like the X Men animated series was like the thing that I was into. Like I didn't get into the comics until kind of. After that, I think I probably went from the animated series into into comics and stuff. But like, yeah, Mystique was by far my favorite character. Um, for some unknown reason, like the ability to shapeshift was always like my goal. I don't know what I'm saying. I think that's like a, a really relatable thing for a lot of folks. Henry, did you have a, what superpower did you want? I always wanted to fly. It was never, a, I wanted sometimes invisibility, but mostly I wanted to fly. And I wanted to fly and be invisible because I had a lot of fears. Like, I'm such an anxious fucking person that even in fantasy land, I'm like, but then people would shoot you. I like had to just like go <laughs> full anxiety on my fantasies. But in high school, I remember like, I would have these very vivid, like, I don't know if either of you experienced this, but like, it's, I feel like it's maybe a factor of dissociation where you have a vivid, a very vivid daydream and like, you're clearly awake, but it's some part of it is imagination and sort of like, like dream logic. Like I had this fantasy where like, I would wake up and my back would hurt and I would imagine like wings sprouting in this very bloody way where they would like break the skin and be like hawks, like eagle's wings, like bird wings, not like fairy wings. And then at the same time, my boobs would like shrink into my body and the wings would be coming out. And this was like a recurring sort of daytime fantasy that I had, which I didn't really unpack until now. Ada, what about you? Yeah, I also had ones around just like running away or like like big ones for me where I wanted to like be able to phase through things or shrink and like like just pass through stuff. Or a one that I always thought would be really cool is being able to turn into light. Because then I could get away really far and also go through glass because I just don't want to be, I didn't want to be seen. It didn't occur to me I could change mm. my body because that would have been nice and helpful. Instead, I was just like, no, don't perceive me, please. I'm just going to literally melt through this wall. All three of those. Yeah. All three of yeah. those are about not being perceived. Yeah. And like, did anyone have like the Alex Mack fantasy of just melting into a silver puddle? Loved Alex Mack, yeah. yeah. So good. I was like, when is an electrical storm gonna fucking hit me and give me some cool shit? Gotta get some GC-161. I wanna be Capri Sun. Okay, so, so, uh, one of the things that seems really trans about the series is the way that the Animorphs, which is what the teens decided to call themselves because it was the 90s and they were radical as hell, uh, was that they're all kind of forced to live in a closet uh, and sort of keep their secret from their parents and friends and everyone else because uh, if, if they find out, it could be dangerous. And uh, there's a lot of parallels there to discrimination and turfs and leaving a double life. Uh, what are your two thoughts on that? Yeah, that's something that I don't think I really thought about until I started reading the books again this time. Like, uh, that was much more apparent and much more 
like that allegory is much stronger, I think, than the than just Tobias by himself. Like in some ways, like all of them feel trans because of that. Like it's it's the body snatcher thing. Like nowhere is safe and you have this secret that is, you know, something that you're terrified of anybody ever finding out. Um, and it is married to a way to change your body into something else. So that certainly helps. Yeah, it's like... I feel like there is, there's something very appealing, and there always has been for me, but especially as a kid, in books that sort of explained that, like, much like we've discussed previously in, like, the Mavion Rose episode in Little Mermaid, that, like, your parents don't always know best, and in fact, sometimes they're completely brainwashed by the society you live in, and you're not. And I think, as a trans kid, like, yeah, duh, like... <laughs> My parent, like, you can't, even if, like, even if your parents are, like, maybe even more liberal and you don't necessarily, like, know how they'd take it, like, you know, like, you kind of know what they're going to say because you already know what society has to say about, like, your deepest truth. So you're like, mm, I'm not going to talk to them about anything in my life. So, yeah, and, like, I think the, is it the third book where, like, Tobias's mom sort of comes into the picture and there's like a lot of like really heavy like she loves her service dog and like she can't really love her son but they have to work together and there's like weird disability shit happening like that hit really hard because it is like I think too as a trans kid you're sometimes like in the position of having to like parent your parent in many ways like while sort of keeping the truth of like why you're so mature and adult from them yeah that was book like 48 i think it's near the end tobias finally meets his mom because of weird blood genetic testing that the yerks are doing to find the animorphs through it, through it seems like they stuff. can it's they complicated can get the, they, they have this blood from all these battles that they've had and the animal dna exists in their in their blood and i don't think that's how blood works but yeah. i'm no scientist is that how dna people in the 90s no. seem to really think dna could do a lot maybe because like it was playing yeah. more of a role in like true crime shit but like yeah the way the dna is talked about in this series is really hilarious yeah i blame jurassic park yeah that's a probably a big part of it there's a lot of genetic optimism in the late 80s through 90s uh, a lot of like mutants and like splicing and things yeah. like that in pop culture. Um, something. Oh, another interesting. This isn't interesting. It's just I read too much of the wiki, and that was also like the book I read a third of. Uh, is or like a halfish of, but um, yeah, his mom's like blind and has amnesia, and when that you they end up giving his mom the ability to morph which heals her blindness which she got in the accident where like then she had like Tobias taken away because she was blind and had, had amnesia and everyone was like it's better just to not let her be around this child because that seems healthy that's not healthy at all it's a bad choice you probably could have figured out a way to work that out but um they do that but she gets healed of her blindness but not her like brain damage and something I thought was really fascinating throughout this is that their brains, like their minds, stay them. There's like the little human person of them, but it's put on top of an animal brain. So it's like the software of a human brain trying to run on an animal brain. So they have like these invasive thoughts and instincts and things yeah. like that, which has a lot of really interesting stuff around, um, uh, what is it? Uh, like ideas of, um, of like socialization or things like that. Is it's like, 
you are you, but then you're like forced into this role where then you have to you act in all of these ways, even if there's a, a discongruence between like what's going on in you and then this like expected programming or hardware you're connected to. I think that leads really well into the next kind of point, which is there's this thing about dissociation. So Tobias at a certain point decides to kind of release himself into the animal and retreats and kind of just lets the hawk take over. And this is the time when he first eats uh, like a rat Um, for a while before then Jake had been like saving him leftovers and like putting it in the attic or something. So Tobias is still as a hawk eating human food and never being satisfied with that. And finally, the hawk brain takes over and he eats a rat and he feels this horrible disgust and like revulsion at like, what have I done? This thing is it's wrong, but it's also who I am. And uh, I think there's there's obviously a, a parallel there. But at that point, he retreats and becomes a hawk for about a day and just kind of like lives as a hawk. And no, no, no human thoughts at all. Uh, and that is right before the first uh, suicide attempt. Was that? Was that the part? Yeah. There was one part, I think it was that part, it might have had to do with the female uh, hawk as well. But, like, there was some line where he was like, no matter how much I say no, it comes out yes. Like, there was some line he said that, like, felt so clearly also, like, that it could possibly be read as a reluctance to undergo puberty in a certain way, and, like, a reluctance, a reluctance to have desire. And, like, it was just, like, so interesting the way that was kind of slipped in there that it's like, oh, my God, like, my worst, like, instincts are taking over. And, like, I feel like even for cis kids, that's sometimes what puberty feels like. It's just like, oh, my God, I'm a fucking hairy, like, monster. And yesterday I was just a kid. And, like, I feel like that's maybe the – although, I don't know, now, now that we know that Kay Applegate's child is trans, like – who knows, like, who they, who she was writing this book for. But, like, you see it as, like, oh, this is clearly about puberty. And then, like, that translates very well into talking about it as, like, dissociation and, like, going through puberty while trans and all that. Yeah. Well, and the suicide attempt is also really... So, Tobias attempts to commit suicide by flying into a glass door, like, of a mall... Um, and then someone ends up like opening the door and then just like, and then Tobias is like in a mall and being like, what'll I do? And like freaking out. And then like, is like, I'm just going to fly right into this skylight and kill myself. And then, uh, one of Tobias's friends stops him by like throwing a baseball and, uh, yeah, it's just a really wild situation of this character just doing something that was simultaneously both like affirming and terrifying and disgusting and being really upset about it. And this is the first time Tobias really embraces being a hawk that we see is, is this moment where he gets this like pleasure from hunting and then immediately being like, and now I need to kill myself because I'm like losing this part of me. Something I found really interesting around Tobias's presentation and embodiment and sort of entire deal compared to these other kids, especially is uh, Tobias. And we see this more as it goes on. Doesn't just see Tobias as a person that turns into animals or as the hawk that is just a hawk. Tobias is like both. 
And when Tobias like meets with the Elemist in the Elemist's like magical Elemist plane to do magic conversations, Tobias looks at his body and it's simultaneously like a boy and a hawk and something that's both a boy and a hawk. And I just think that's really interesting is that there's definitely more of like some like queerness and gender fuckery and like non-binariness and Tobias's identity versus these other kids are just choosing like, oh, they're like, oh, I know what is me. I am human. And then sometimes I am animal versus Tobias is like, I don't know. Maybe I am an animal. Maybe I am a bird. Maybe I am a boy. Maybe I'm a boy who's a bird or a bird who's a boy. And that I found so fascinating and interesting is it's like a very non-cis normative uh, view of this thing. And I think that's why the allegory kind of cuts both ways is there's dysphoria and euphoria around feeling like a bird. There's parts of being a bird that make Tobias so deeply happy, like flying and riding on a thermal and like things like later, like perching and like these instinctual hawk-like things that feel right. But then there's also the human things around like language and connecting with people and being able to present as a human uh, when needed is a huge thing at the end of uh, whichever book that is. It's like book 12-ish, the second Tobias book, um, where he's not allowed to go to this award ceremony for Rachel, who Rachel is like Tobias's love interest, um, because he's a hawk. And she's like, well, a hawk can't come to my school award ceremony. So then he gets the ability to like morph into his boy body sometimes right at the end of the book and then is able to like present as a boy and like embody boyness for this one thing. And then that comes a euphoric moment, even though then he's back to being like a happy bird and he was unhappy as a human definitely initially. And then unhappy when he was only a hawk, but he thrives in this like (laughs) queerness of hawk boy. Yeah. Boy hawk. I've got a I've got a quote here from the the third book, the the first Tobias book. Uh, That's how I know you were wrong, Rachel, at least partly. I am a human, yes, but I'm also a hawk. I'm a predator who kills for food, and I'm also a human being who who grieves over death. I'm Tobias, a boy, a hawk, some strange mix of the two. Be happy for me and all who fly free. That's so sweet. Also. The thing, the part where, like, he's having that conversation with Rachel and she's just like, yeah, you can't, like, show up for me in this way. I found it interesting that, like, the other Animorphs can, like, you know, like, be at school together and talk together. But, like, when Tobias is around, like, they have to make sure no one sees them, like, talking into space. And I don't know if anyone else had an experience where, like... You know, in school, like, I was a weirdo and, like, I had friends, but there would often be a situation where, like, someone would, like, maybe become slightly more popular and, like, couldn't be friends with me anymore. And it's kind of like (laughs) we couldn't be seen, like, hanging out anymore. And, like, I had a problem sort of understanding because I didn't really understand how social things worked. And I still don't. But, like, it did remind me of sort of, like, oh, like, yeah, we can hang out after school. But, like, in school, like, you better not talk to me. Like, you're not, you're persona non grata. So it's just like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely had experiences around that. And that's also something that came up in Tori Peters' book, Detransition Baby, is mm-hmm. Reese is like, oh, I had a bunch of incredibly, I th- it was something like serial, serial monogamous friendships or something like that, where... 
it was really, and it's really intense, close friendships with people that then are like, oh, I can't be your friend, even though they recognize something in you and they like see that there's something special about you. But then in school, they're like, oh, but I can't associate with you at school because of what of that thing, because of that thing that makes you you, which I think is a heartbreakingly relatable thing. Hi, it's been a minute. Welcome back. Welcome to season three. We got some people to thank. Our first person is Layla Krell, who does some really stunning morph work, gotta say. Next person is Katie Dell, who would never leave their teammates behind during a morph mission. We've got Jana Dunfield, who loves to turn into an elephant and just stomp cars because it's fun and it's awesome and it's empowering. And finally, we have Duff, who shares a name with my favorite bar in Brooklyn, Duff's. Thanks for supporting us. Everybody's awesome. We have a tea public store and we have a red bubble store and we got merch up the fucking wazoo. So come buy it. Um, yeah, we love you. Keep being awesome. Thanks for your support. Bye. Hi. Um, okay. So, uh, one thing that came up a lot in the second Tobias book where we have the Hork Bajir, which are like giant lizard snake monsters with knife arms and horns and Tyrannosaurus Rex feet. Um, also when you talk about Andalite, when you talk about the shapes of these aliens later, it doesn't matter so much, but I'm a major Andalite. <laughs> fucking I'm wild. such an Andalite truther now. Like, <laughs> the way that they show the Andalites on the covers is wrong. It doesn't match the description. They should have looked cooler. They're not centaurs, but yeah. that doesn't matter. The Hork-Bajir. Right. So there's these Hork-Bajir, which are these giant T-Rex monsters that are vegetarians that the um, the Yerks take over because they're made of like razor blades. In a similar way where if you like met a moose and you're an alien and you're looking for like big warrior creatures or like a rhinoceros, you'd be like, oh, I want to be a moose or a rhinoceros because they've got giant murder knives attached. Um, But the Hork-Bajir that they meet, uh, there's these two freed Hork-Bajir that their little brain slug yerks come out to recharge and then they get away. And they're what the one that initially gets away describes the other one as its wife. And then they assign, like, he, him pronouns to that one, and that's Jerahami. And then um, the other one, whose name I keep forgetting. It's it's Ket, Hel- Hel- Ket, Hel- Ket Helpak. And then they have a baby. I, I thought that that was the boy, and the other one was the girl, yeah. but it doesn't matter. That's no, so, no, and there's a reason why you probably <laughs> think that. But Jerahami describes uh, Ket as the... As, as his wife, and they refer to Jerahami with he, him pronouns. But then the kids who take their DNA initially, and later uh, the other Animorphs, most of them get the DNA of hork and morph into them. But Rachel takes Jerahami's DNA and then um, and morphs into, like, a male hork and then uh, Tobias, at the end of the book, takes Ket's DNA and morphs into a female hork And there's just so much interesting gender stuff happening there, where it's like this couple that's like shipped together, 
who otherwise wouldn't be able to fuck because one of them's a bird. Well, I guess they could figure it out, but presumably they weren't going to. But now are literally a mating couple that like the people they take the DNA from like have a kid together who becomes the Hork-Bajir Messiah politician and leads a Hork-Bajir revolution. It's wild. These books are fucking insane. But they become this cross-gendered mating pair where Rachel <laughs> takes on the the male Hork-Bajir role and Tobias takes on like the female Hork-Bajir role, even though they're like so hard to gender that like Marco says a bunch of gender essentialist jokes about the work bajir when he's like how do you even yeah. tell which one's a girl do they wear makeup yuck 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 yeah. uh they didn't think there could be female hork bajirs until they met yeah. this pair it seems like they're like what right yeah which is odd like there's a lot of that in the books like even in the first one we talk about like marco has to morph into the girl wolf and he's complaining yeah. that he has to be the girl wolf yeah. And they do eventually start morphing other Hashtag humans. Force like at one Marco. point, Rachel <laughs> absolutely forced him. If you know, it's funny. Like I went on Ao3 and was like looking at fan fiction of all this, and Marco as trans man is very makes popular. Sense. Sorry, I interrupted because I I couldn't yeah. resist. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, um, it's a forced fem narrative for sure. So at one point, Rachel gets like. I don't know, she gets in a shipping container or something, and she's gone for a while, and Marco has to impersonate Rachel around her family for a while. There there are definitely, there's definitely some gender stuff in some individual books that we did not read. Uh, it, it comes up with frequency, for sure. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially, um, I guess this was, this was when they were all wolves, too. Um, the idea of, I guess, which first of all, the alpha wolf stuff is is bullshit that's not science it's like bad science it's been debunked but um but there's stuff around like the way hormones act in their bodies and like influence their social behaviors around each other when they're put into these animal brains um and there's just so much cool gender play in these books and like so much interesting and exciting stuff around that and also these kids like don't even think about the gender of the animals that they're getting most of the time uh, with the exception of, like, Marco being like, why did I have to be the girl wolf? But, like, the rest of the time they're like, yeah, I'm a I'm a pregnant alligator, so what? And it's like, what? That's wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, like, the, the moment when Tobias sees the caged female hawk, I'm kind of like, does he instinctively know she's female? Like, is he using his hawk brain or his human brain? Or, but, like, I was kind of like, how do you and like just the relationship between like a sentient hawk and like a hawk hawk was very interesting like there was some jealousy there and there was some desire like there was a lot yeah that dynamic i thought was really interesting is because one throughout the whole this is in the first tobias book um there's a lot of his like flirtation with rachel and his feelings for rachel coming through in it but then there's a female hawk where he's like I don't want to fuck this hawk, but do I want to fuck this hawk? And then it, like... But I belong yeah, with her? and it kind of, yeah. like, invites her to join, to, like, mate with her. And he's like, I can't. And then she dies, and he feels all fucked up about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really... That's, that was that's so how sad. it always is in those books. There's always... No matter what kind of side story happens, that they always die. Like, it's depressing. I'm wondering, too, like, 
we know that the Yerks, like, kind of possess whoever and whatever, but, like, they don't seem to be possessing just, like, regular-ass animals that much. And I'm kind of like, hmm, like, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes! Hi. Um, I mean, Hi. they can, because they, they, they have. It's just they, they would prefer to take the, like, more powerful, smarter beings. So that's why, like, humans... Or the, like, lead Yerk on Earth took over an Andalite prince, uh, which are, like, those are, like, the high-ranking Andalites, and then he's able to, like, morph into all these other things. Um, but I think also something really fascinating around uh, the Yerks versus the Andalites is this this thing we actually saw in a lot of, like, 80s cartoons, too, like Dino Riders, where both of them... Uh, their entire alien species, their deal is that they live outside of their own bodies. Like they transfer their minds in some way into another body. And, um, there's a question of like consent and agency in that. And I think that's like the more interesting thing with like the Yerks can take animals, but choose, choose not to most of the time, uh, versus the animorphs. And I guess the, and the Andalites by extension in theory, even though it turns out the Andalites are really bad in the last couple of books. But, oh, yeah. um, yeah, they choose to take things that like are not sentient and be like, yeah, I can, I'll borrow this raccoon DNA and become a raccoon now. And it's like a communing thing. It feels kind of nice to get your DNA taken apparently and you like might fall asleep. Um, Versus the Yerks, it's like a forceful, yeah, it's, it's without consent. And when they take the D, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting is both of them are like, they live in other bodies that aren't their own, but one is like a consensual relationship and the other one's non-consensual, if that makes sense. I think that's the deal. Yeah. And when they do, yeah, when they, when the, the kids do start getting, doing other morphs, like for the Hork-Bajir, for example, they have a whole conversation about it. Like, Ket. Ket Helpak and Jerahami give intentionally like give their consent. Yes, you can morph my body, even though they're not taking over their their actual body. They're just kind of copying them. It's a conversation that these kids have about we need to have consent from this because this is a sentient creature as opposed to these animals. There's another thing. At one point, they morph whales, and it's this like mind altering like consciousness that they go into, and it's like there's. There's a whole conversation about how they, you know, the most, um, the deepest animal that, that you can, you can morph and how, and how that might not be, whether or not it's all right to be a whale, uh, also comes into play. I really liked to, well, I don't know if I liked it. I was like a little annoyed at it because I wanted to see it from Rachel's point of view, but early on in the, f- in, uh, the encounter, when he's describing how Rachel is becoming an elephant and he's like, she wasn't pretty now. And I'm just like, is there going to be an implicit weirdness about like taking, like becoming bigger bodied animals, I suppose, or like an ideas about like what kind of animal bodies are like better. I was kind of like, that's fucking cool to be an elephant. Like that's probably the first thing I'd want to (laughs) be like. It was weird. Yeah, and Rachel is very, Rachel's very into it. Rachel is, is very, She's um, stomping shit. She's stomping cars. Yeah. She's like, yeah, it was great. But yeah, I don't know. There's still a bit of that, like, 90s kind of like, some bodies are better than others ideas. Oh, for sure. Even in yeah. the animal kingdom. 
Yeah, there's a lot of beauty stuff in the Rachel books. For yeah, sure. those would probably be interesting to read. Do they explore body image issues in those at all with either of the girls, with Cassie or Rachel? Because it seems like maybe that would be like too it's been a long time. 20, too like 21st century of a take, but the 90s had so much body expectations. Yeah, I don't remember. It's been it's been a long time since I've I've read them. Um, I guess it's been uh, over ten years since I read these books. Besides the the Tobias ones I just read for this, but probably my guess. I mean, like I was surprised at how well these held up. Actually, um, I was expecting them to be a little bit more uh, cringy than they than they were. And not that there aren't those moments, of course. I mean, they're still from the the mid nineties, but but can we talk a bit about? Um... K.A. Applegate's trans child, because I'm now very, very interested <laughs> in learning more about this backstory, because I had no idea. I mean, yeah, I know that at, cer- at a certain point, there was um, there was a conversation about it, and I think someone, you know, maybe even someone on Twitter asked her to say trans rights or something, and she, you know, revealed that her daughter was, was trans, um, and that's... That's about all I know. Um, I certainly don't want to like invade this woman's privacy, but um, she seems to be like a, a good trans ally. And uh, yeah, her daughter is is her daughter was not born when she first started writing Animorphs. I do know that. Okay. All right. Interesting. And then she wrote like some of them with her husband, right? Which is also kind Apparently of apparently like- she wrote all of them with her husband. So that didn't come out until later. She was the only one. So that's why it's credited to K.A. Applegate instead of Catherine Applegate, because that's I she see. uses her real name, Catherine Applegate now. And of course, there's the whole thing. And then, of course, there's the whole thing where, you know, women authors use initials. So boys will will read books by them, of course. But um, yeah, the two of them like broke the story and wrote the books together. There's a long period in the middle of the Animorph series where it's just ghostwriters and they're credited in the books. So the the two ones that we read were both written uh, by Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant. And the last one, the diversion, is written by a ghostwriter. And you can tell because they're always dedicated to the ghostwriter. Um, so about, gosh, like... 30 probably at least of the books are written by ghostwriters and then Kate and then they came back to write the last two books the last two books are written by them I was trying to think too because like obviously Animorphs like coincides with like the moment in the 90s when it's like Power Rangers and possibly like trans although Transformers was maybe a bit earlier but like I was trying to think of another example where like people morph not into objects or machines or like sentient cars but animals and i feel like this is unique in that sense unless i think ada (laughs) may have another example um i'm secretly a big nerd about toys and stuff because i worked in the the toy industry uh there was the there were were the Mighty Morph Power Rangers, which it's hard to not see a big parallel here because it was around the time of the Mighty Morph Power Rangers and like those first couple seasons of Power Rangers, and it's five kids, all of which like with distinct personalities, and it's like an ethnically diverse group, which was very marketable because of the Power Rangers. Uh, and interestingly, there were Power Rangers toys from that first line of Power Rangers stuff that did transform into, like, animals. They had, like, an animal mode. Uh, you saw the cool. same thing with, like, the Ninja Turtles because Transformers were a really big toy. And there was even a line of 
Animorphs toys that were Transformers. Like it was Hasbro's Transformers making Animorphs. So it was like the kids and they get morphed into the animals. Neither the kid form nor the animal form. The animal forms look slightly more animally. It's all body horror, which is the most accurate thing about the toys to the books. But that was like a pretty big motive at the time. Uh, There were Beast Wars as well, which were robots who transformed into animals, which... Uh, had a similar toy line, they, and then yes, Katie. Oh, uh, were they were they animals or were they like robots that looked like animals, like robots designed? They to were be animals? robots. Mm. They had robot transformers bodies. They looked like transformers, like in bodies, and then they transformed into animals. And then, uh, and they had fleshy outside parts because they needed the fleshy outside parts to protect oh. the robot inside parts because it's like. Okay, yeah, that yeah. was my question. Because yeah. it's like a early Earth type planet with um there's like radiation is why they need the fleshy parts. So they still have like weird biological things. Okay. The Beast Wars series is really cool. If you ever want to just like uh smoke weed and uh lose weeks of your life, look up all the videos Always. on Transformers Deep Lore Always. on YouTube. It's like a whole genre. There's a bunch of people who do it. And I've, like, watched a lot of stuff, and there's so much context. Um, oh, there's another one. Another theme, though, that we saw with this is there was also a lot of, like, um, like cool teens relating to animals in some way. The one that always sticks out in my head on that was the, like, Fox Kids Kong show, where it's, like, this, this guy has, like, a headset that lets him, like, take over King Kong's body, and he's a cool teen, and... Uh, but it was a Ooh. whole genre at the time was like Never cool teens in some way communing with nature or uh, transforming into animals or being animals or uh, being in giant robot animals. Uh, there's like a weird cultural moment around it. So this very much exists right. in that that bit of the zeitgeist. Uh, and it was all super merchandisable is I think a big part of it. And I'm surprised right. there weren't more Animorph toys I think part of that right. is when you look in the books, you realize like, oh, these are really fucked. I think they should have done a cartoon instead would be my yeah. my having worked yeah. in the toy industry take be, yeah. is they should have made it more kid friendly and fun and whimsical for yes. the, the toys because that's how they made He-Man and Transformers and G.I. Joe marketable. Also, like I was thinking, too. This reminded, certain parts of this reminded me of, like, especially the wolf morphing, obviously, like, Teen Wolf and, like, American Werewolf in London and, like, types of media where, like, you, like, uh, either, like, a puberty metaphor whatever, where, like, someone becomes a beast, but they have absolutely no control over it. Like, it just happens to them. And it was interesting that in this series, like, they have very specific control and rules and, like ways in which they can sort of anticipate what's going to happen, which was also kind of interesting and, like, empowering, because, like, I don't know about anybody else, but, like, those stories where, like, the moon rises and, like, you're going to turn into a beast always give me, like, extreme anxiety, because I'm just like, my body is unpredictable! But this was like, oh, okay. Like, it's a little better that they sort of know what they're doing, and they just say, morph! (laughs) Like... Yeah, there's some there's some definitely some counterexamples to that. Like the most horrific thing, and this is something that I'll always remember probably. In one of the books, I don't remember which one, they morph ants 
and the ant hive mind completely overwhelms them and they have no control whatsoever when they become ants because it's this like it's this consciousness that they're not in control of that they're only part of and they all almost die because they just become ants it's it's really it was it's really scary yeah shit yeah, that's but, uh, but yeah, that happens frequently. Like they have to fight the consciousness of the animal when they they take them on. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this around just like identity. Like I, I think that's just the coolest yeah. thing. And maybe it's I spend too much time thinking about brains and how they work. But um, through throughout this, the I guess like the empathy and the writing of looking at all these people's brains and putting your own brain into something else's body and then trying to live as it and like empathize with it from just like a writing exercise perspective seems really cool. Um, that's also a thing that's super nineties about this is the idea of like very radical empathy and like environmentalism, which I'm all about personally, probably because of captain planet getting in my brain, like a brain worm. But, uh, yeah, very yes. like radical nineties content. Yeah. Like, did anyone else does anyone remember that super fucked up, probably very racist book and movie, The Indian in the yes. Cupboard? That's just about oh, a yeah. white boy taking care of a a tiny Native American man? For some reason. <laughs> this put me in mind of that because yeah, it's both like I think probably the Indian in the Cupboard has not fared as well as as this, even the title is really bad. Like, but there is a similar thing of like teaching children that like there is a world and a life outside themselves, which, yeah, like I don't really see those types of narratives for kids bringing up a lot these days. Although like, I'm not really like watching or reading kids stuff. So maybe there is, I have no idea. I'm sure that there is. I mean, Catherine Applegate has continued to write under her own name now. She won a Newbery Award a few years ago for The One and Only Ivan, which I read and I think is really really good. Um, It's based on the true story of the the mall gorilla. Um, This gorilla who spent his whole life in this zoo in a mall, which is extremely depressing. Oh my god. Um, It seems that, if I were to guess at the breakdown between her and her husband, Michael Grant, based on what they've written separately since this, is that he probably was more the sci-fi kind of part of it with all the the proper nouns that we discussed. Yes. And she tends to write about animals um, and all of the, the animal stuff tends to have come, seems to have come from her. She also wrote a book about, uh, from the perspective of a tree, didn't she? It's. Cool. Did I, I may have made that, that up. Dope. I'm going to, let me Google that and make sure that I'm not thinking of someone else. That sounds, I would read the that The only book. one I've read was the one and only Ivan, yeah. I think it's called Wish Tree. I haven't read it. Hmm. Um, wit trees can't tell jokes, but they can certainly tell stories. Uh, yeah, red is the neighborhood wish tree. So it, personif- it like personifies a tree. I think that's maybe just a really cool practice she does. Um, because of my ongoing sort of keeping my ear to the ground on like from working with toys and having worked in like comic book shops and stuff, I still am around a lot of kids media and I bump into it a lot, which is weird. I feel like I have a big black hole between for like teens to young adults. I'm like, I have no idea what they do, but I'm like weirdly in touch with what like 12 year olds are into. I'm like, oh, I know. I know what you're up to. Um, I feel like 
most stuff though doesn't take this particular view of like empathy uh it tends to there's a lot of really cool like social justice in kids media these days but it tends to be empathizing or like rather opposing oppression and like more justice focused from that and focused on like equity than this like radical empathy being needed first which I think is an interesting cultural shift we've seen just generally in the past like 30 years in activism in general is we don't, I think we've moved past the necessity of being like, oh, you have to live your life in their shoes and all of that stuff before you can really understand what's going on and be able to help them. And instead we're able to just be like, oh yeah, there's a power dynamic here that's bad. We should probably just address this bad power dynamic. Uh, I don't know. What do you two think about that? Because I have some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's a way that we've kind of it's a it's a it's a kind of progress because it's something that doesn't have to be allegorical anymore. You know, those books trying to sell in the 90s would probably have been rejected by the publisher for like being, you know, too political or too, you know, too focused on on this. Whereas, you know, back then, something like I mean, I'm not saying that Animorphs is a is a social justice book. I I don't think that was necessarily the intention, although there are definitely themes in it. You know, it was easier to make this kind of, you know, allegory. And that, that, that applies to the trans reading of it as well. In the nineties, I feel like there were a lot of, it was a moment of like lots of sort of like meat tech meaningless diversity or like diversity without actual discussion around it or context around like, I constantly think about like a show like Doug or like Arthur, where characters have different skin colors. Sometimes if it's if the characters are animals, they're different species and it's never discussed. You're just kind of like, okay, everybody's getting along in this world. But like, we're supposed to assume that like no one sort of has any identity politics. And now like we can't. It's a really exciting and great thing that like we can't have diversity without discussing it and talking about how like not everybody is treated equally so like you can't create a world where you presume that everybody is created equally and like even kids i think are sort of coming to understand that like it as you know like maybe seven or eight year olds they're starting to see that reflected whereas we just had like this very like reading rainbow view of like oh like everyone's different but everyone's the same which today is just like no (laughs) nope so it's good it's positive. Yeah, that's an important distinction because, I mean, as we said, this this group of kids is racially diverse a bit. Um, I mean, Cassie is black and Marco is Latino, but it's, to my recollection, it is never brought up at all in any meaningful way. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that we saw a lot of that in in the 90s, especially there would, and a lot of things there would also then be like the, the like token disabled character who would then have, like, some super-powered yes. wheelchair or something that, like, it's also a helicopter. Um, yeah. And they would <laughs> yeah. very rarely address the, like, issues related to that, with the exception of, like, Captain Planet, I feel like, addressed those sometimes, and it would always be like, whoa, <laughs> this is actually... Captain Planet was cool. Uh, it was like, this is maybe too intense well, Captain, for my little yeah. kiddo brain, but um, in the 90s versus now you watch these shows and it's like, oh, that like is a really overt discussion of like racial prejudice and power dynamics and like economic issues. Um, Something 
I think we lose though by uh, by only looking at things through like a justice lens and not also having the empathy lens. Because I think having to go through the thing of like, oh, empathy and understanding, some sort of like body swap or like hopefully not blackface type situation to like see what the other life is like. But yeah, lots of blackface type situations. But um, without the the sort of the the conceit of that, I feel like we lose something and not doing the empathetic exercise that I think is just good for like, it's okay to understand other people and try and understand their experiences and like put yourself in their shoes. Um, but that's not enough. And I think we kind of, I, I hope we move towards both and kind of start to see more kids media where they both have like, the empathetic experiences without that feeling kind of like weird and colonialist. Uh, and then the like more justice minded experiences. And I haven't seen that a lot with the exception of maybe like a couple episodes of Steven universe. Um, yeah, but. I think big mouth sort, I mean, it's like fully a comedy, but I think they have done a good job at least like, with Josie Toda of sort of like addressing like she's a trans character here's like sort of maybe what that means but more like here's why it's awkward right now and like here's what she has to deal with and the character is basically like talking about it and then it's like not really a big deal but it's still not like erasure it's still like oh yeah this person has a different experience than we do right now and like cool yeah, yeah I think the comic Lumber Lumberjanes uh, does that really well as well um, for a long time, it's not brought up at all, and then it is brought up later. Yeah, yeah. Lila Sturgis has written some of Lumberjanes, and you should read it, because Lila Sturgis is cool. Yes. She hasn't written all of them. You should read all of them. Yeah. But uh, I think, I don't know if Lila listens to this. If Lila's listening to this, hi. <laughs> because we're all huge nerds, we've made four categories for us to place things in. The categories are headcanon, things that are just trans because we want them to be. Major gender stuff, lots of gender things happening, but not necessarily transgender things happening. All but explicit, literally the only thing missing is the use of the labels that'd be appropriate for the time. And literally trans. It's a literally trans story with trans elements described in the trans language of the time. Henry and Katie, where do you put the Animorphs? Well, it's difficult because I think one of the things about this is that it is... It is allegory. Um, I mean, all of the, the ways that we're looking about this is the difference between a human and a hawk, not necessarily the difference between any gender. Um, so in that case, I would probably say major gender stuff, but the word gender isn't right because because of that. So um, major trans stuff, I guess, like transhuman stuff. I think it's all but explicit because like... It is so much about, it is so much about dissociation. It is so much about being separate and apart from your family unit and your school and your society. And I feel like those are all like extremely trans themes, but I can also see a context where like cis kids going through puberty are like, oh, like that's me. I also feel alienated. So like, it's kind of what you make of it. But I feel like there are so many things that pop out, like special ones like, oh, a person's what they are on. Like, the inside, your body doesn't matter. Like, that is just, like, mind-blowing. So, yeah, I feel like it's 
all but explicit. Um, I'm going to say it's major allegorical gender stuff. Uh, it's somewhere between that and all but explicit. It's like a bit of both. Because if you, I guess if you like say allegorically it's all but explicit. I mean, I guess allegorically it's explicit. And, but it, that's maybe a low bar to set is that they're changing their bodies. They're dealing with dysphoria. They're dealing with alienation, even amongst other outcasts that are alienated. Like Tobias isn't just like one of five outcasts. Tobias is an outcast amongst the outcasts, which is hard. And that all feels super duper trans and especially like kind of being trans in the queer community. When it's not necessarily a very like trans queer community can feel like that. So in that, those ways, it's like kind of spans all of those. Uh, but something that really jumped out to me was all of the like actually explicit major gender stuff in this around people like embodying other genders, which is wild and like discussions around gender essentialism and the number of horns a hork bajir have. And all of that stuff. So I thought that was super fascinating. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Totally Trans Searching for the Trans Canon. We have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com backslash totally trans. If you back us at $3 or more per month, you can access our bonus episodes, the most recent of which will be our live episode recordings from this summer. Also, we have merch. You can find it on TeePublic and Redbubble, and we have links posted on Twitter in the description of this episode. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, because we live in a cyberpunk nightmare oligopoly. Join us next week when Fatty the Street will be telling us why Dipper from Gravity Falls is totally trans. Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon is co-hosted by me, Henry Jardina, and you can find me on Twitter at Punk Groucho. You can also find me at henryjardina.substack.com and at intomore.com, where I'm the editor. It's co-hosted by me, Ada Rhodes Short. You can be found on Twitter at the Ada Rhodes. That is the underscore A-D-A underscore R-H-O-D-E-S. And co-hosted by me, Katie Coleman. You can find me on Twitter at Katie of the Lake. All quotes and audio clips are being used under fair use. I think that use was very fair, don't and you? And our season three theme music is an open question only to be answered by the passage of time and the magic of editing. We'll put a link in the description to the music. Until next week, keep searching. Hashtag force fit Marco. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Sorry, I interrupted because I, I couldn't resist. Hawk boy boy hawk. <laughs> <laughs>